It is a great delight to be able to bring this message this morning. We will be in Acts chapter 2. And beginning in verse 21, we have the first sermon given in the New Testament church, if you will. It's given by Peter. And as we come to verse 21, we catch him in the middle of his message. It shall come to pass that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through Him in your midst, as you yourself also know. Him, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that He should be held by it. For David says concerning Him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, My tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will also rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in hell, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried. And His tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to Him, that of the fruit of His body according to the flesh, He would raise up the Christ to sit on His throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that His soul was not left in hell, nor did His flesh see corruption. This Jesus... God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into heavens. But he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstools. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of them, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus. Jesus Christ, for or because of the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children, and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. What if, what if you were called upon to prove The resurrection of Christ using only the Old Testament. 
Could you do it? What if you were speaking to people about Jesus? What is it you would start the conversation with? I've heard so-called quote, gospel presentations that never mention the resurrection. You can look even in the side the front cover of the adult Sunday school quarterly, teacher's quarterly, and you can read as what was in the last one, all this points to our need of Jesus and the life He offers. He's waiting to give you peace, just as He promised His children in Babylon centuries ago. So here's, it's ABC. A, admit to God you're a sinner, repent, turning away from your sins. B, by faith, receive Jesus Christ as God's Son and accept the gift of forgiveness from sin. He took the penalty for your sin by dying on the cross. C, confess your faith in Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord. And you may pray a prayer similar to this as you call on God to save you. Dear God, I know You love me. I confess my sin and need of salvation. I turn away from my sin and place my faith in Jesus as my Savior and Lord. That sounds a whole lot different than what Peter was saying and what Peter was commanding. And it also shows that, yeah, okay, Christ got mentioned, but what Christ did and why He did it and why you need it, get a very, very light treatment. And I know it's just a little blurb inside a paragraph in a quarterly. But in so many ways, the gospel is not about you, it is about Christ and what he has done for you that you could not do for yourselves. And we see it clearly coming out here as what Peter is talking about. After explaining the events that had taken place to a mixed crowd, some amazed, some scoffing, he made clear what had just taken place. This was the time of Pentecost. This was the time when people came out the disciples came out of the room that they were in after the Holy Spirit had come upon them and they were telling and speaking. And they were speaking words that they had never learned in the language that they were speaking them in. They weren't babbling. They weren't going on. They were speaking actual language and dialect because here at that time in Jerusalem were people from, as it says, every nation under heaven. And they could hear in their own language and dialect. As it says in chapter 2 and verse 11, what did they hear? A bunch of babble? No, they heard the wonderful works of God. Now when we think about the wonderful works of God, we're not talking at this point about going back to Egypt and the deliverance from bondage and the crossing of the Red Sea and all that took place. That's not what he's talking about in the wonderful works of God. He's talking about here, specifically, it's all about Christ. What God has done through Christ for sinners. The wonderful works of God in the person of Jesus Christ. His birth, His life, His crucifixion, His resurrection, and His ascension. 
And now the first thing Peter does is to show from the Old Testament that this event had been foretold and prophesied by Joel the prophet. And he quoted five verses from that passage from chapter 2 of Joel. And you can see that and read that for yourself. But now beginning at verse 22, he calls upon those to listen. Men of Israel, hear these words. And say, would you please listen? If you'd like to hear me, that would be good. I might have something to say that may be important. This Peter, who shrank away scaredly from a little maiden, a servant girl, this Peter now stands before this crowd. We, we have an idea that it had to be more than 3,000 people, probably uh, triple that. He stands before them and he says, you need to listen to this. You have a choice. You must hear these words. So he calls on them to listen. To listen now and to listen very closely. Hear these words, he said. It is a command. It's not a suggestion. And he begins with this. Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man. There was no fear of bringing up the humanity of Jesus. The humanity of Jesus was necessary for the death of Jesus and to be raised from that death. He really was a true man in the incarnation, his taking on of our true body. But he was not just any man. As he goes on, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through Him in your midst as you yourselves know. He was not just a man. He was attested by God to you by the things that He did. How, how was this accomplished? These miracles and wonders and signs. Well, God did these things through Him. And then he adds, as you yourselves know. So in that group, there were those who had seen some of these things that Jesus did firsthand. And also in that group, there were people who had heard of those things that Jesus did. And this, this was only true. And you yourselves know that He could not have done these things as He says here, which God did through Him in your midst as you yourself know. Couldn't do it any other way unless God was doing these things. It meant that God was with Him. And then He goes right to the greatest, the most necessary of things they needed to understand. Verse 23, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death Him, this Jesus, Him being delivered by the determined purpose, meaning that God purposed to do this. It was not something that came up 
all of a sudden. It was God's plan and purpose from the beginning. Under the covenant of redemption, this was done before time. The determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, or as in the King James, the determinate counsel, or in the ESV, the definite plan, or in the New American Standard, the predetermined plan. Do you see what Peter's saying? He's telling us that everything is predetermined and foreknown by God. And at the same time, he says, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. You see, when men act sinfully, when they act wickedly, they are responsible for what they do regardless of the outcome. Somebody can say, well, yeah, like Judas could say, yeah, what I did, it was a terrible thing. It was an awful thing. I agree with you. In fact, I felt terrible about it afterwards, so bad that I took my own life. But look at what happened. Look at the outcome. No, no. The outcome was God's plan. What you did was your plan. And you are the one who is responsible for the crime that you committed, regardless of how things worked out. And people ask, how can God be totally sovereign and be a predestinating God and man at the same time be a free agent? And people argue towards one end or the other. They say, how do we reconcile this? And I say, you don't. And you don't need to. This is a truth that maybe we can't comprehend, but we certainly see it illustrated over and over again. Our limited minds are trying to reconcile something that doesn't need to be reconciled. While we fail to be able to explain it, we are able to see it illustrated before us. And the crucifixion gives us one of the most glaring of all illustrations. And here it is spoken of, and here it is illustrated. It was a predetermined plan of God from before the foundation of the world. It wasn't plan B, it wasn't plan C, it was plan A because that's all God has. You see, when you are the sovereign God, you don't have multiple plans, you don't have backups. Because as all-powerful, you make your plan to come through and come true. And so it was predetermined that Christ would go to the cross. It was predetermined from before the foundation of the world. And it was predetermined that He would be... that Judas would betray Him. And yet, Judas was not under some kind of spell. He was not as some kind of poet. Judas acted as a free agent. As we saw last week, he got so angry over that use of perfume and the money that he lost out of the coffers that he would have put in his own pocket anyway. And he said, that's it. This man doesn't come anywhere near what I want him to be. And of his own free will, if you will, his own free agency, he went and did what he wanted to do. And in doing what he did, he fulfilled the plan of God. 
But we also know what else was in that predetermined plan of God. In verse 24, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that He should be held by it. It was not in God's predetermined plan for Jesus to be held by death. But we see that Jesus died a real death. A horrendous death. A suffering of unimaginable depths. He suffered in His soul. He suffered in His body. And you can try every day with every device and formula that you can develop and you'll never come close to being near to the range of His suffering. I've probably mentioned it every year, but every year it shows up. You get these people who do what? They, 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 it mostly happens down in South America under the Roman Catholic influence. They impale themselves to a cross for a period of time. Oh, we want to know what the sufferings of Christ were like. No. You never come close to that. You can have an imagination about, well, there's a little bit of physical pain here, there's some physical pain, but you don't know the load of sin that was on Him. You don't know the turning away of the Father from the fact that He couldn't look upon the sin of the Son. And the, the fellowship in the, in the Godhead remained, yes, but there was Jesus in His humanity, God in the flesh. The ugliest sight in the history of mankind. All the sins of all the people who would ever be saved on Him. Grotesque hardly begins to explain. Not only this, He proves the resurrection from what had been prophesied by David in Psalm 16. Here, from the Old Testament. Because remember, Peter is standing there. He's not only in front of a bunch of Jews, but he's standing there preaching at a time when the New Testament had not been written. So the only Scriptures they had were the Old Testament. So he is able from the Old Testament to show that Christ would be raised from the dead. In Psalm 16, as he's speaking of this, that, oh, you will not uh, cause my soul to see corruption. Well, Peter, as he's reading this, as he's recounting this to him, says, that's not of David. David's in his tomb. We know where that tomb is and we know he's in it. He's speaking of someone else. In fact, as I've tried to bring out you cannot understand the, the Old Testament is so incomplete and unintelligible until Christ is plugged in. Otherwise, it's a book without an ending. It's a book that leaves all kinds of loose ends that you don't understand. And Psalm 16, what David is writing there, is unintelligible and, un- and you can't understand it until... It's plugged in to an understanding of Christ. And so Peter says, you know he's not speaking of himself, don't you? He can't be speaking of himself. And so in verse 30 he says, well, if David 
And therefore being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. So David was a prophet as well as the psalmist. And in verse 32, Peter says, This Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. This Jesus, God has raised Him up. And of course, in other places, we'll see that Christ raised Himself. We see He was raised by the Spirit of God. Why? Because it's a Trinitarian thing. He says, He not only raised, but we are all witnesses of this resurrection. It's an actual historical event. It happened in history. It happened in time. It is a place that you could go back to if you had a time machine and you could see it take place. There's been so many kinds of of attempts or tries to, to explain this empty tomb. Some of them are, you know, well, the disciples went to the wrong tomb. Okay, the disciples went to the wrong tomb. Why? Well, because the angel or the gardener said there that uh, he's not here. Would you please read the rest of the sentence? He's risen like he said he would. So, you know, you can't call out little clips and say, okay, this is saying he's wrong too. Well, okay, so they went to the wrong tomb. That implies what? That there's a right tomb. So if they went to the wrong tomb, there's a right tomb. So go to the right tomb and you'll find that tomb's empty as well. Or the the one that, well, he swooned on the cross. He just passed out. Uh, First, I would like to see anybody live who's had a spear stuck up their side. And your, your blood had actually begun to break down into its, its component parts. But again, someone who has been crucified, your shoulders come out of joint. You've had these huge spikes go through your wrist, not your hand, but through your wrist. Now what do we know? He was wrapped in the tomb, wasn't he? So he can't, he can't move his hands because of the tendons have been damaged. So how's he going to unwrap himself? And then on top of that, he, he's going he's to uh, revive. He's going to come back to... to uh, he's, he's, he's no more unco- unconscious. And in that state... Now also remember, there was also that which went through the ankles... He's going to get up from where he lies, unwrap himself, wrap everything up really nicely, and then go to the entrance of the tomb and roll the stone away. And then he's going to come out looking like what? A zombie. He'd be the most frightening thing to look at. Even more frightening than Jonah after three days in the belly of the great fish where the acid of the, the stomach and all probably just made him all kinds of colors. He's going to come out 
See, that's almost even more miraculous. And we could go on and on at the different things that people have tried to, to say. Well, he had a spiritual resurrection. Whatever that is. But then on top of that, well, okay, a spiritual resurrection, but the body's gone. Well, the disciples came and took him. All right. The disciples came and took him. Where did they put him? And then after. There's one that's even more disgusting that actually that, that dogs ate his body after it was let down from the, the... Again, we have thousands of written accounts of the resurrection of Jesus. How many accounts are there where he was eaten by a dog? Zero. Zero. But people listen to that sort of thing because they don't want to know that He rose from the dead. But think about it real quick. The disciples stole the body. What do we know of happened to all the disciples in the end? They were killed. Except for John. John dies of old age. But every one of them was killed. Now, you might be killed following a lie that someone comes up with. But would you die for your own lie? If you knew you weren't telling the truth, would you die for the fact that you weren't telling the truth? I mean, people have been fooled by a lie to do some things, but it wasn't their lie. It was somebody else lying to them. But can I imagine how preposterous it is for people to say that the disciples took the body and so for the rest of the time they were lying. And that's what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 15. It's not true. We're all liars. In fact, God's a liar. Because He didn't raise whom He said He raised. This verse 32, this Jesus whom God has raised up, He not only raised, but we are all witnesses. All of us here, we, we, we saw the risen Christ. And verse 33, therefore being exalted, He ascended to the right hand of God. We saw that too. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured out this which you now see and hear. Again, this was prophesied by David, as he goes to verse 34, for David did not ascend into heavens, but he says of himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Do you notice there's two lords? And they're both Davids. None of them, has, none of them are David. They're David's lords. They're both greater than David. And in verse 36, Peter says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom they rejected, whom they had yelled, crucify Him, whom when the people were offered a choice between Him or Barabbas, said, give us Barabbas. This one, he says, whom you jeered. 
And this one whom you spat upon and insulted while He was on the cross, this Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And just so you understand it, especially from the Jewish end, this is the Messiah. Given all authority in heaven and on earth. This Jesus, by the way, further attested to you by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This Jesus. But what Peter is saying is not just for that time in that place. Because everyone who rejects Jesus is no different than those who were there saying, crucify Him. I say, well, that's, that's pretty extreme, isn't it? No, no. Why were they yelling, crucify Him? Because they didn't believe who He was. If they believed who He was, they wouldn't yell, crucify Him. So those who say, I don't believe He is who they say He is, are no different than those who stood there that day and said, He's a liar. Kill Him. Everyone who rejects Christ calls Him a liar. Whether they say, no, 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 no. I just want Him to be a good teacher. No, you can't get away with that. He also said, they will kill me and in three days I will rise again. He said it at least three times, three different times to His disciples. He said that. And if you say you don't believe in the resurrection, you say, He lied. He lied. He's not who He said He is. You're in the crowd yelling, crucify Him. And know what happened. And what He said. When the people said, what shall we do? Verse 37, they were cut to the heart. And they said, man, what shall we do? How can we be saved? And Peter replied, well, if you want to, you can sign this card. Or if you want to, repeat this little prayer after me, okay? And everything will be fine. He doesn't say that. He says what? Repent! And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Christ. In essence, it's a call to faith. Repent. Wait a minute. How is that a call to faith? Because it's a call to belief. You don't repent to something you don't believe in. If you don't believe who God truly is, you don't repent because you don't believe who He is. But the first step before repentance is faith. Which is belief in its response. And so as we finish today, having seen these things in the Word, what does it mean? Well, the first thing, I hope by now, over these years, you might be catching... is the Old Testament is not some separate book of laws. It's not a cute little book about the history of Israel. And it's not a cute little book about morality stories. 
It is that which testifies to Christ. As Jesus Christ said Himself, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. They are they that point to Me and testify of Me. And He was talking about the Old Testament because again, as He said that, there was no New Testament. It is an incomplete book without Him. Who was the Holy One who would not see corruption? Who was the Lord that was told by the Lord to sit at His right hand? What was Joel prophesying about? What's Isaiah all about? What's the picture of the Old Testament sacrificial system? What is it pointing to? What about the spotless lamb of the Passover? And on and on and on we could go. What about the incense in front of the altar? Making prayers acceptable. Christ being pictured. That's the first thing we must get clear. Secondly, Peter's unflinching certainty of the resurrection. It's not a lie. It's not a hallucination. It was Jesus whom we saw risen from the dead. And we also know, as Paul would say, that there were up to 500 at a time who saw the resurrected Jesus. And he said, some of you are alive right now. So if he was saying something that was not true, they could be standing there going, you lie, Paul. No, you can't. Because you saw it too. And how many times have you seen 500 people share the same hallucination? Unless they were all eating the same mushrooms. Third, the crucifixion, the resurrection are all part of God's predetermined plan. All part of God's predetermined plan. But just think, if you're a believer, you're included in that predetermined plan. The fourth that we see from this is God's hatred of sin. And we talk about that. Yeah, God hates sin. But you know, Christ hated sin as well. He hated enough that He was willing to give Himself to conquer it. And so we see not only that, we see the Son's hatred of sin at the same time. As we see His hatred of sin, we see His love for those who would believe. How do we know this? Because He loved us too much to let sin destroy us. He overcame all evil. All evil. Particularly the evil that was done to Him. But also in overcoming death, which was the sting of, of sin, is what brought Sin brought death in the first place and overcoming that. He overcomes every single form of evil for us. They say, well, how does this compare? Well, what was done to Christ was the greatest of all evils ever done on the face of the earth. Well, I'm not comfortable with that. There's been some mighty awful things that have been done. 
Oh, we can look over in the Ukraine and see what's happened to children and that sort of thing. Those are pretty bad things. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. But do you realize that what they did to Jesus was an attempt to get rid of God? And that's the supreme being. You can't get any higher. There's no greater crime than that. And He overcomes that evil. That's the word of hope that all this evil that happens in this world is going to lose. It's going to have an end. And that's a good word for for a a child that's been abused or a wife that's been abused or, or all the inequities of this world. And then the last, the fifth thing, verse 39 for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. The promise remains. The promise remains that for those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will also conquer death in the end to a resurrection to life. The promise remains. And so as I close today, I ask you, Does the promise does the promise apply to you? Let's stand together for prayer.